0: encourage you now to open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, that is in the New Testament, and we are going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 2, and just two verses there, verses 14 and 15 this morning. There are, I realize this is Christmas morning, and we are breaking into some family traditions, and there are behind most mythological figures and legendary figures there is some kind of historical grain of truth and such is the case with santa claus as well santa claus as we know him or jolly old saint nick is an actual historical figure Uh, not one that was created merely as a marketing campaign early in the 20th century but one who actually had a real existence we think, we suspect, we do not know much about him, but we do, we, we suspect he was born around 280 uh, AD, and we do know that he does, died December 6th in 343 AD, so quite a long time ago. There's a lot of legendary stories that have grown up around him. He was a most beloved pastor, a most beloved church leader, loved by those in his own community, uh, respected throughout uh, uh, the known world, those who knew him. He was born into a wealthy family and because of that, one of the things he was known to do was to give gifts to those in need. In fact, one of the most, and we, we're not sure what is true and what isn't, because much of this is getting passed down by second and third and, well, whatever hand comes after that, but, uh, One of the best stories about him is that there were three young girls that were about to be sold into prostitution because their families were impoverished, they didn't have enough money for dowries, and he comes along and drops three bags of gold in their windows to prevent them from being sold and to give them money to start a new future with. Uh, There are all sorts of clearly legendary fables about him. uh, One story goes that when he was an infant, uh, he only nursed, two days a week and he fasted the other five which is um, clearly legendary but there's all sorts of things that he was claimed to have done claimed to raise people from the dead claimed to destroy pagan temples he was claimed to have saved sailors at sea one of my favorite legendary stories and we're not sure we know there's some of truth here we're just not sure how much truth it is But at 325, the Council of Nicaea church leaders were gathering to deal with a particular particular teaching that undermined everything that the Bible clearly teaches. That is, that Jesus was indeed truly God and truly man. That he was fully God, we might say, and fully man. There was a particular teaching called Arianism, not the Arianism that you may be familiar with, but a, a particular teacher, a, a deacon who had risen to prominence by the name of Arius, and he began teaching that Jesus was not truly God, not one with God. Rather, he was merely the first and greatest of all the created beings. So there was God, and then there was Jesus somewhere underneath him, a lesser being, but still great, still, we're worship, just not truly divine. I want you to understand that that teaching strikes at the very heart of what we believe as as Christians. It strikes at the very heart of the gospel. If Christ is not truly God, we have no hope of salvation, for he cannot represent us as God before God. The legend goes that old Saint Nick met Arius there in the Council of Nicaea and they got into a heated debate. And losing his cool during this debate, jolly old St. Nick stopped being so jolly and just punched Arius in the face. That's my favorite legendary story about St. Nick or Santa Claus. Over the years, the, the, the legend about him grew and it grew. It began to be celebrated around the world in a whole variety of ways. His, by the 9th century, 6th century rather, his, he was being heralded as a saint, beloved by all throughout Christendom there in the West. Initially the story was that Saint Nicholas would show up for good children and fill their boots, fill their shoes with gifts. But for bad children, Santa was to be feared. In Germany, he would bring along his farmhand, Rupert, whose job it was, was well, the threat was for bad children, Rupert would eat bad children. In parts of Switzerland, bad kids weren't eaten, they were threatened with being put in a sack and taken to the Black Forest. In parts of Austria, Catholic priests used to dress up in the red bishop's robes and black boots and they would go to homes where there were particularly naughty children in that town and they would threaten to beat them with a rod. So you've got cannibalism and kidnapping and child abuse. We can handle the naughty and nice list after all that. But isn't it fascinating... That no matter what the morality is of the world, we still have this this separation between naughty and nice, between good and evil. Even though what that means, what that looks like, how that is defined in our world is constantly in flux. In fact, in our day, things are being turned on their head. What was once good is now bad. What was once bad is now good. And not just good, it is mandated that good and everyone celebrate it or those who do not fail. And there's not just one kind of morality. The the kinds of morality, the the ways that we can find ourselves on a naughty and nice list in the world haven't gotten smaller despite the fact that we live in a live-how-you-please age. The the reality is they have gotten larger. Think about the way you eat, what you eat. Think about all the rules about uh, eating. Are you eating too many carbs, enough carbs? Are your vegetables farmed to table? Are you righteous enough that you actually farm your own vegetables and you bring them to your own table? And today it's not just enough to eat meat. You've got to know your meat's genealogy. You've got to know if it's ethically sourced. More than that, ideally you want meat from an animal who actually volunteered to be eaten by you. Parents, you probably feel this more than anything. As you are constantly evaluated, you feel constantly evaluated about what your kids are eating versus what other kids are eating. Other kids are getting being made the most nutritious breakfast and you're just thinking, I'm just glad they're eating anything. I don't care if it's magically delicious. I don't care that it's loaded with cinnamon and sugar. It's just they're eating something. And it's not just eating, it's it's every part of life. It's the way we dispose of our trash, it's the way we dress, it's the way we talk, it's the way we live. Constantly evaluating one another. Constantly being judged whether we measure up to someone else's list. Perhaps one of the ways that this is historically felt is, for those of you who are old enough, you are invited back to a high school reunion. And part of the fear is that when you go back, the question is will you measure up? Will your job, will your life, will your kids, or your marriage, will all that measure up to those around you? And it's not just parenting and different aspects of life, there are movements in our society. But defy biblical morality, they're, but they're not empty of their own morality and judgment. In fact, what you will find is they, they are the most judgmental of all people. There are sacred spaces and people and flags and symbols that our world demands not just affirmation of, but celebration of. To use a wrong word or to use a wrong pronoun, puts you in a position of great societal guilt of which there is no working off, for which there is no forgiveness. The world has its own naughty and nice list, and it has its way of dealing with it. And those who are famous, rich, famous Hollywood types, often you'll, you'll see they, they might run afoul of something. And the way that they go from being off the naughtiness to the world's nice list is through some set of practices. They put out some general apology. They commit themselves to going to some kind of therapy or getting counseling or to some re-education to know how they hurt and how they can be a better ally or a better partner with a particular people group or a particular uh, organization. And after going through all this process and a period of silence and learning, they come out and they reinvent themselves and all of a sudden they are now acceptable. And this goes on every year, regularly. But the Christian teaching regarding who we are, what we are, the naughty and nice list, is far different. It's not rooted in the, the changing morals and ever flexing ideas of our world or of some influential person, it is rooted clearly in God's eternal word. It is unchanging. It is fixed. And what we find here is that we, we are not born nice and then find ourselves through a series of poor choices or mistakes or bad habits, find ourselves on the, the wrong side of the ledger, find ourselves on the naughty list. The biblical teaching is that we are born naughty. We are born sinful. We are born rebellious against God. Enemies of God. Broken. Broken as sinners. Broken by sin. We we want our own way. We are by nature self-seeking. And despite the fact that God who has made us. And has it with great patience endured us? Despite the fact that we deserve his judgment, yet he in his mercy has provided a way. He himself, in sending his son, he himself has come. You and I, we are helplessly hopeless on one side of the ledger. But God moves us. He redeems us. He forgives us. He recreates us. He saves. While the world has their Santa Claus and their impossibly legalistic codes of naughty and niceness, God has a better way a hope filled way that begins in the Garden of Eden and comes to us at Christmas. Here in verse 14 and 15 of chapter 2 of the book of Hebrews, we are given two reasons of the coming of Jesus. There are countless reasons. There are many reasons. Even, even with, if we were to expand our text to include the verses surrounding verses 14 and 15, we would discover a number of other reasons. But I want to just focus in on these two verses And I want us to see in verse 14 and 15 the the truth that God does indeed become like us. But before we study the word this morning, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, this is your word. We ask that by your grace you would cause it to be a lamp to our feet. That it would be a light to our path. That it would illumine our own hearts and minds. That we may taste and see that you are good. We pray for your grace along these lines. In the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. We do, in see, we do indeed see that in verse 14... That God has become like us. Follow along as I, as I read. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken, that is, they have partook, they have become, they, are, they are themselves are of flesh and blood. He himself likewise shared in the same. This is the claim, the, the unequivocal claim that Jesus, that God himself has become like us. Us, that God, the one who is truly divine, has joined himself becoming truly and fully human in the full use of that word. We can see, if you go back in verse 10, why we know this is, is not just a, a a lofty person, a superior person, or an angelic person. We see in verse 10, we know this is speaking of Jesus Verse ten: For it was fitting for him. This is Christ. It was fitting for him, for whom all things and by whom, by whom all things are made, and bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. This is the Him that is being described in verses fourteen and fifteen. He is the one for whom all things and by whom all things exist. That is he has created all things and he has created all things for himself. This is that hymn. The hymn in verse 14 is the hymn in verse 10. This is nothing short. Jesus is nothing short of the fullness of deity. He is one with the Father. Distinct absolutely. And yet and the mystery of the trinity the mystery of who god is he is one and the same he is god with us jesus as we read in john chapter 1 he is the word the very revelation of god the very what it looks like to be god that's who jesus is the word is god The self, same God, and the Word was with God. And how the Word can be both divine and with God, how He can be both identical to God and distinct from Him is part of the mystery of what we as Christians hold together, but it is clearly taught all throughout Scripture, all throughout the New Testament. What we find is that God has added to Himself Humanity, just as we are flesh and blood, he himself shared. That is, he partook, partakes in the same. That is, flesh and blood, humanity was not natural to God. God did not have a physical body, he was not human. He is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And yet, in Christ, the Son of God became. The son of man. And it's not just that he took on a physical human body into which deity was poured like a vase. But what we find the scripture teaches is that in every way, in everything that it means to be human, accepting only sin, Christ became human humanity he became one with us we see this in verse 17 just there at the very beginning of verse 17 therefore in all things or you might have in a different translation in every respect in every way he had to be make he had to be made like his brethren in every way yes christ yes the son of god became Human. He, he took on to himself a human body. Which means that in the womb of Mary, the Son of God, God himself, was knit together in Mary's womb. He had to breathe to survive. He learned hunger and thirst. He knew pain and sore muscles and exhaustion and sickness. He knew back pain and headaches. More than this, he had human emotions. We see throughout the the gospel accounts, Christ's experience of grief and sadness and anger and happiness and betrayal and love. He had a human mind. For the first time, he was ignorant. He needed to learn how to speak. To write, to read. He got weary, weary. He needed sleep. The Son of God, who had never slept before, had dreams. This is indeed a a mystery. That God becomes like us, sharing in our humanity, is an incomprehensible mystery. How does he who is infinite become finite, add to himself finiteness? How does that happen? How does he who is omnipotent, as we sang earlier, hangs the stars in the sky, creates everything by the word of his power, and is upholding all things, how does he add to himself weakness, vulnerability, does he, who is omniscient, become ignorant, needing to learn, without sacrificing his omniscience? How does the one who is self-sufficient in every way, who has never needed anything, how does he learn what it means to hunger, to thirst, to need sleep? This is... This is a a, a great mystery that that far outstrips any mystery of how a jolly red man in a sleigh can make it to every home, you know, Christmas Eve. This is an incomprehensible mystery, but it is more than that. It is a merciful mystery. It's a merciful mystery. I say it is merciful because God does not owe us. His own son. God does not owe us his coming. He was not obligated to take on our humanity and to become like us. God does not owe us Christmas. Christmas is an act of mercy, of sheer mercy. We know this because God does not take the same steps for angels that He has taken for us. Elsewhere in the scriptures, we read uh, of the rebellion that. Lucifer, who had later became Satan, once he had rebelled against God in heaven. Wants the greatest of all heaven's created beings. In pride, rebels against God. Wants to take the place of God and is cast out of heaven. Leading a, a host of angels with him. Do you see what we read about them in verse 16 though? For indeed, he does not give aid. He does not help. He does not provide salvation. He does not come to take the place of angels, to become angelic. He does not give aid to the seed. He gives aid only to the seed of Abraham. There is no Christmas for angels. There is no Christmas. There is no angelic incarnation. There is no salvation. And just as God owed them, owes them nothing, so he owes us nothing. We are his creation. We have rebelled against him. We deserve nothing but justice from him, and yet he shows us mercy. He shows us mercy. And if God, who transcends all things and is infinite in glory and power and majesty, if, if He will show such mercy to creatures like you and I, frail, faulty, weak, how much more ought we to show mercy to one another? How much more ought we to show mercy to those around us? And yet, even in this, we fail daily. And we see that God did indeed become like us. And we see why He does throughout the rest of verse 14 and 15. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, He Himself likewise shared in the same. That through death He might destroy Him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And release or deliver those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. What we see here in those two key verbs, he is destroyed and he delivers. He destroys and he delivers. Here Christ said "Is to destroy and overthrow a tyrant. The devil whose power over humanity is sin and death. Everywhere the Bible connects sin and death, it is our, our sin against God, our rebellion against God, our unselfishness, our desires, all of that is sin. All of that is rebellion against God and all of that brings death. And, and physical death is just a, it is itself a portrait. It is itself a picture of the eternal judgment that we that we all deserve. And the tyrant of this death is Satan. And Christ has partaken of our humanity that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. We know, we feel as if death is a normal part of life. We are born, we live, and we die. But that is not how God intended this world to be. And there is coming a time in which it will no longer be that way. But because of Christmas and because of the cross and because of the empty grave there will be no more death. By becoming like us Jesus was able to taste death for us and in dying he destroys death and the power of Satan who held it over us. More than that he doesn't just destroy death and the power of the devil he delivers his people from the fear of death. It was because God became man And destroys the tyrant of Satan with his power of death. He delivers us from the tyrant of fear of death. Because Christ is risen from the grave. Those who trust in him. Are promised that we too will rise again. That death will not claim us eternally. That we belong to him. Through death. Christ Defeats death. Death is not just an, an event at the end of our lives. It, it inserts itself into every, every aspect. The fear of which plagues us at our darkest moments. It, it haunts us at the scariest times when we lose control of our cars. When something comes into our lives and we are... We will leave a positive diagnosis of something that is terrible. Death begins to haunt us in real and terrifying ways. Parents, we, we shield our kids from death. Lest they have nightmares, the fear of death has a grip upon us. And yet, Christ has come to defeat this fear. To liberate us from it. The fear itself is slavery. It is chains. It is a bondage from which Christ has come to liberate us. Without Christ's death, death wars. But because of Christmas, because Christ has come, death for those who have trusted in Christ, death can only whimper. The naughty and the niceness of the world is ever changing, ever fluid, ever demanding new laws, new loyalties, new penance, and new punishments. But the eternal law of God is fixed, and despite the fact that we deserve the punishment of God, yet in His mercy, He has sent Christ into this world. He has sent His Son into this world to liberate us to liberate us from death itself and the fear of death in the centuries following the death of Christ there arose numerous Christians who questioned whether the Son of God had truly come and become one with us taking on full humanity some argue that Jesus, that the Christ, that the Son of God, only took on the appearance of a man, that he was not truly God. Some argue that he took on a physical body, yet did not have the soul or mind or heart of a man, just, just the appearance, just the, the body itself. In the 4th century, however, a man by the name of Gregory of Nanzianzus wrote a work defending and articulate what we see throughout Scripture that Christ, the Son of God, has truly and indeed become one with us. Truly God joined himself to truly man. And he comments on these two verses at length. And by this text, he sits down and he writes these words. What Christ has not assumed, he has not healed. And what the point that he is making there is if Christ has not taken on true and full humanity, he cannot heal us of. If he has not taken on our full humanity, he cannot truly die. And if he is truly not dead, if he is truly cannot die, then we can have no hope of, of life after death, of life with the Lord. More than that, if he has not taken on true and full humanity, if he has not taken on what, uh, the, the hardship, the pain, the frailty, the weakness, the hunger, the thirst, if he has not taken on these things, then we will not find these things redeemed. But because he took on our humanity, we will be healed of every stiff joint, of every sickness of the mind of every stooped back, of every disordered desire and thought. We will one day be a new creation. Because He who created all things became like one of us. We will one day experience the fullness of that recreation in full. More than this, For all who hope in Him, all who trust in Him, because the Son of God became like us, we will one day be glorified with Him. We will experience all heaven's joys. There will not be one good thing of God that He withholds from those who hope in Jesus. The gladness, the infinite happiness of God himself will be poured out on the hearts of those who hope in Christ like a mighty river that will not, cannot be stopped. The ocean of the joy of God will drown out our sorrows. It will make incomprehensible our tears. And we will see that the grace of God exceeds anything we have up to this point ever fathomed. The blackest of night will not enter into the new heavens and the new earth because the the Lord is the light of the earth. The, The Lamb of God becomes our lamp, our sun. Friend, I would point you today, not just to Christmas, but to Christ. The one who, in taking on humanity, Took on our sin at the cross and dies in the place of sinners like you and I, so that we might taste of heaven's joys with him for all eternity. Rejoice this Christmas. Taste and see that God is good. Let's pray. Our Lord, You have indeed come. You, the Eternal One, bound yourself to time and space, entered into the world in real time. And you did it so that we, we who have sinned against you, while we were still sinners. You died for us. In our place. To purchase us. To purchase sinners. For your, to purchase sinners. For your glory. For our eternal joy. Oh Savior. Thank you for your coming. Oh God. We praise you for your mercy. And your compassion this Christmas. We praise you and ask that this Christmas you might help us to know your mercy afresh. All this we praise, pray in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.